You are tuned in to the Oil Field 360 podcast, sponsored by World Oil and powered by Galtway Marketing. Welcome to Oil Field 360 podcast. We are broadcasting live from the Lucchini Mame booth at OTC 2019. This is a, a very special live broadcast. We have a, a good friend of ours, friend of the program, if you will, Dan Henderson with uh, Henderson Energy Products. We're going to go into that a little bit further because I know that's not just the name of the company. There's a, quite a few underneath that. I'm your host, Josh Lowry, and my co-host today is Trey Smith. Hello, Trey. Hey, Josh. Dan, thanks for being here. Very glad to be here. Thank you, Trey. And I'm so glad you're co-hosting today. Thank you. He, thanks for twisting my arm. Well, it's funny, actually. So he called me this morning and he's like, you got to get Trey on the co-host. I said, Trey does come in on the co-host. He's, you know, we... We rotate around. We have David in here. We'll have some other co-hosts. But I mean, if Dan, my brother's on the show, <laughs> not, I got Hey, it. by the way, not even knowing this was going to happen today either. Yeah, no. Just right. totally organic. Yeah, we didn't know. No. No. We, no. And no, in the conversation I had with him this morning, I mean. Yeah. So anyway, well, here so, we are. So, and it's awesome. It is awesome. This is one of my favorite parts about OTC is that, you know, there's a lot of business to be done. And this feels a little bit more alive. I think, I think you might have some comments on that here in a minute. But you know, your friends from all over the world, colleagues from Subsea, from Frack, you got a lot of different people in here, which is what we're going to talk about. But it is fun to run into your friends like uh, like Dan, and I just appreciate that. And kind of on that note, Dan, you and I have known each other a long time. And I've actually known your family even longer than I've known you. I knew your father in Corpus Christi almost 20 years ago, in fact. I used to sell to him when I was a young forging salesman. He was a very intimidating guy, but he was always nice to me. Mm-hmm. He was always real respectful to me. Even though I was terrified of him, and yeah, <laughs> and I mean that. So I just, I, yeah, he had a big personality. I appreciate you those kind words, though, for sure. Well, and and it's fun when I finally met you. I was excited to tell you, hey, I knew this is a great little story. Before we get into it, I said, Dan, I go, I, I knew your dad, and I said, this is great. We're going to be friends. You said, oh man, you know, I don't know if I need any new friends. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, guess what? We're going to be friends. That's actually not quite the story that I remember, but I don't know if we're going to have time to get into all okay. that. Well, it's similar to that. but Yeah, uh, definitely. That came out of the story, Yes, just, just to be clear, but there was some other color. that This is a family audience. It is a family. reminded me yeah. today. So well, We have sponsors. Podcast. We have yeah. sponsors. Yeah. Disney may call one day. Yeah, we got to be exactly. careful. So I want to get into it here and just kind of talk about, you know, one of the things we like to do is talk about how a career and a, a corporate and just a personal arc all blend together to become one. As I mentioned, I did know your father. I say did, he's passed away, and which is really what brought you into the oil and gas business. I'd like you to really, if you don't mind, kind of go back as far as you'd like to on how you came into this because you had a successful career before this. Arguably. Well, I mean, you were, you were, you were <laughs> no, a young... I'm, I'm being silly about that, but yeah. So I'll take you up to that point as quickly as I can. I've actually had some practice in doing this because I was at UT Austin here recently and then last year as well and talking about entrepreneurialism to petroleum engineers at UT Austin. That was year one, which was last year. And then this year they asked me back to talk about my timeline. My, and, and so anyway, I'm a bit practiced, but I'll, I can run through it, I think, quickly. So the short story is my junior year of college, I played baseball all through Little League and, and then through college through my junior year. I dropped out my junior year and started my first business, which I later took public through over-the-counter and and what have you. And so fast forward four years, five years later, my father called me and says, hey, I would like for you to come to Corpus Christi and take over the family business. Well, by that time, so I'm I'm newly married, no children. I'm 25 years old at that point. I had experienced some, well, 
me put it this way. I lived in Hackberry Creek in Arlington Te- or Irving, Texas, to be technical. I had five cars, including a Porsche 911, you know, hundreds of employees, offices all over the United States, beautiful home on the golf course, that kind of thing. And within about 18 months or thereafter, I had to go down to my family's ranch, my dad called it, which meant he had 80 acres in Alice <laughs> with a trailer house out there and get the ranch vehicle just so I could have something to drive. So essentially, I you know learned a lot of valuable lessons as it relates to being not only an entrepreneur, but but more importantly, just in the importance of understanding how to manage money. Mm-hmm. And so, by the time my dad called me, I had already you know started to come back and rebuild a business, and I actually had gone back to college, finished my degree, or in an effort to finish my degree, but I also played baseball. So I had a full time job, or a, sorry, a, a company which was a new company that I had started. I had all the best clients you could have in Dallas-Fort Worth. Trey and I have actually mentioned, talked about this in the past. And I was going to school full-time at Dallas Baptist University. That's how I ended up there. And then I was playing for the baseball team. Mm-hmm. So a lot going on. In fact, the Dallas Morning News wrote an article up on me, which was very interesting. All my teammates called me Family Man Dan. And it, it started out with, you know, he trades in a, a Porsche and a, and a Rolex for gloves and a spike. Kind of like your story earlier, that's not actually what happened. <laughs> it was just as a result of, of a, a big failure I had early in my career that set me back and, and taught me some humility that I needed. And I say all the time, or I've said often rather, that a lot of what has allowed for me to be successful, not only as an entrepreneur, but in life, but particularly as a business person, is that I had a lot of big, big failures early. And I was just too damn ignorant to know any different. Nobody was telling me you can do this or you can't do that. Nobody was telling me anything. So I was just, you know, kind of pioneering or or exploring the world, you know, with virgin eyes, so to speak. Anyway, so my dad says, hey, I want you to come down there to Corpus. And, and, you know, my memories of my father's business was, you know, him and two or three other people in the back of the scrapyard. And I would go down to the shop during the summers when I was a kid and take a ball pin hammer and knock the can open so I get the marbles out of the spray can pan, you know, the spray paint can. So I, I didn't know anything about what my my dad actually did. I just knew that he bought and sold oil field equipment. And my dad and I weren't very close. And so that was the opportunity for me. And my wife at the time had come and she asked me if that was something I'd be interested in doing. Or sorry, I went home and told her. I said, hey, my dad called, believe it or not, this is what he wants to do. This is the opportunity he's put out in front of me. And I'm not doing that, obviously. I just want you to be aware of it. So two days later, she comes up to the office. She says, hey, I think this is what we need to do. I said, God's talking to me. That's a whole other thing to unpack. But God wasn't talking to me. I'll leave it at that. Okay. I wasn't interested in going to do that. But I said, I'll think about it. So a couple of days, weeks later, whatever it was, it was a short period of time. I just kind of, without telling anybody, called my nearest competitor up and said, hey, I have an opportunity to go and, and work with my father down at Corpus Christi, would you have an interest in buying my business? And it was a woman who owned the business. And she said, I'll have you an offer by the end of the day. To this day, it's one of the best deals I've ever done. I got paid for, you know, in cash up front, a lump sum of money that essentially was more money than I'd ever had at one time. And I got paid a percentage of revenues for the next three years, 50%, 25%, which essentially was it almost to the penny was how much money I needed. And I didn't know at the time, but later in life realized it was like because when, when I went broke, I went I went broke big. Right. Not I mean, a fake I, I, I I owed you know another million dollars on the t- on the other side of not 
having anything, mm-hmm. as in the, my car is getting repossessed, the house getting for not foreclosed on, but having to sell the house and all that kind of stuff. So it was really interesting. I think that was a defining moment, maybe a God moment for me. And so I go to Corpus, and within six weeks, miserable, absolutely miserable. So as a result of of that decision, yeah, you were you were in the tech world, yeah. I mean, it was I can't, and plus I can't. I cut my teeth in business in Dallas, yeah. I mean, where it's like if in, if in you don't late- call your cut, if you don't even answer the phone, your customers calling. And you're talking about they, just, just you, so you're done. They're going to call somebody else, and they're you're out. You just know? so we're clear to the audience, you're, this is the late '90s in the world of dot, dot com. Yeah, yeah, the dot bomb dot days. Com. Yeah, but so I mean, going from a Dallas dot com to a Corpus Christi, huge culture shock. God, it's got especially be. in business because I had no other knowledge of right. business acumen, you know, culture or just methodologies, you know, except what I had learned by being in Dallas, which I think is a great point because when I go to Corpus, it wasn't only some of the dynamics that I experienced, you know, kind of full frontal with my father, who I loved. I mean, he was my hero, among other things. But, you know, it was like literally at eight o'clock, everybody was at work. And my dad only had six, six, maybe six, eight employees. So everybody went to work at eight. And then there were buzzers and people stopped working and would take a break. And then at, from 12 to one, the, the phones weren't answered. This is 2002. Yeah. Yeah, so lots of going on, and I was very unhappy, and so I did what any other rational person would do. I decided that I was going to go try out for a pro baseball team. <laughs> so I did. Mid-20s. 25, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I'd finished my college career. didn't get drafted because I weren't very, wasn't very good, and I played outfield my whole college career with the exception of pitching about 20 innings. So I go to an f- open tryout in Florida, and this is a whole nother podcast, but I go to Florida, and I and, – and I didn't get signed then, but I later got signed by the Florida Marlins, and I was the oldest rookie to ever sign with the Florida Marlins. And so as a result of that, I had to go back and tell my dad, and I remember if you've seen the movie The Rookie, when the, the father's telling his son, you got to put away, you know, childish things, son. So anyway, <laughs> I, I didn't do that. I played baseball for three years, you know, minor league baseball for three years. I never pitched in the big leagues. Oh, and I got signed as a pitcher. <laughs> that, that was what was really strange. So outfielder, you know, my whole life, pitched a little bit get signed. But during the off season, I would work with my father. And I also started some other businesses. I had a company that manufactured baseball bats, among other things. And then I put on promotional events for other people around the US and North America that were interested in aspiring to be professional baseball players as well. So having a lot of fun. In fact, when I went and, when I looked at my timeline, that was one of the most happy periods of my life. Because I was, you know, I was getting to know my father. I was working with him during the off season. And then I was, you know, pursuing my passion. I didn't have the 18 kids I have now running around, you know, driving right. me crazy. So it, it was an interesting part of my life. So three years later, my dad dies of cancer. He'd been diagnosed, you know, that previous year. So he dies of cancer. And I retired from professional baseball and, and took over what was, you know, an oil field equipment trading company at that point. That might be a good place for me to pause. Well, how much time did you say we yeah, have? Is this three no. hours? <laughs> it's, uh, just keep going. It does. It, it is what it is. I mean, I, I want to, your story. It's it's a compelling story, and I want to hear this stuff. What I what I really want to do, I want to hear this stuff. But I, what I think is interesting is some of the early adoption of what the Dallas technology was. You were able to bring some of that mindset into the oil field because that really jump started some of the Doyle valve into Axon, and then even so, even more than that, your digital activity is really five years, 10 years ahead of its time at the time. Now, now these companies are starting to catch up. But what I'd really like to do is find out, you know, weave that in. Yeah. Okay. That's a good, that helps me because I'll tell you, and you're right. 
I wouldn't so much say that it was it was the technology side of it, but it was more the fact that you know we built five thousand not only just websites, but we had to understand how businesses functioned in order to be able to pr- properly present them into the interweb <laughs> or the worldwide <laughs> universe right, of, of computer ne- connecting. So what we did do, and what I did was when my dad died, and I took over this little bitty company. You know, I knew there was a huge opportunity in the marketplace, right? And I actually had communicated with my dad, but he was just not, that was not what he was going to do. I jokingly say that my dad, unfortunately, had to die in order for him to realize what he would have been the most proud of me of. Right. I think that's true for a lot of companies that maybe have family successions and things like that. But nevertheless, he died. And when I took over, I took a really small part of that business, which is what I was ultimately interested in. And we grew it to a you know a multi multi million dollar company with hundreds of people and five manufacturing facilities and worldwide you know brand and, and direct and, presence. And what company is this? That was a company called Doyle. Doyle. Yeah. But what allowed for us to do that was not only the opportunity in the marketplace because you have to be fair, right? We had a 180 mile an hour wind at our back. This was you know timing was perfect. Oh five, yeah. right? So this was when all these rig builds that you know really there's not been another time like that since. And we were tied right to those rig builds because we were manufacturing, or not right then when he died, but not long after that, we were manufacturing valves and manifolds and doing all kinds of other stuff. So nevertheless, we took our, you know, the marketing experience that I had, but which this industry still, and I love this industry uh, after 18 years this year, but I took that mark, that experience that I had in learning how to build brands for other people. And I focused it with intentionality around, you know, our business and we marketed like rock stars right. in a very disruptive, non-institutional way. On top of that, though, we built, and this is what I love to talk about, but we built an incredible culture of people who, you know, are all, we're all aligned towards a, a common, you know, not only goals and objectives, but, but things that were more specific to legacy and impact, right. you know, like community, like how we actually interact with those that, that we team up, you know, that are part of our team. And well, and I, I definitely want to get into that here in a minute too, because I think yeah. you've done a very good job of that at Henderson now. And thank you, have, you. And you have a big platform for that now actually too. Yeah, thank you. So you rebranded Doyle's. I remember that rebranding at the time. Your timing was excellent, but listen, opportunity, you know, all these things combined, you were working hard. So that's... Sure. And it then, all works together. And then uh, Axon came <clears throat> in, correct? Well, yeah, except that in 2008, I had just closed on the largest acquisition that I had made up to that point, which was a, you know, a company that was at least our size. And we closed on that acquisition earlier in May of 08. And then, you know, of course, by November of that year, the world's yeah, in yeah. absolute crisis. That was so, a tough time. So those next four years were incredibly influential and instrumental in developing my business savvy. You know, when you owe the bank tens of millions of dollars and you have a dwindling backlog. And you're 33 years old. Oh, yeah. I mean, and just, uh, you know, and it was me. I had no partners. I had no big, you know, and I had no equity behind me. It was just me and Jack Daniels. My my ex-wife had left. I mean, you know, took my two kids with her. I mean, it was a not a very pleasant period. But I attribute a lot of the growth that I experienced as a man, you know, as a father, as a leader through that time. And yeah, I, I made decisions that, that changed the way I felt. Right. You know, I think when, when we as, as humans experience trauma and that's what divorce is, that's what the death of a child is or, the, you know, or the loss of a parent or someone's close to you, you know, there's ways to deal with that. And a lot of times it's, it's not healthy. And so nevertheless, though, 
in spite of all of that, you know, for four years, we worked with the bank and they didn't shut us down. And, you know, then in 2010-ish, right, late 10, I would imagine is probably when it was, I went to all like my key vendors and I said to them, I said, look, I, I don't have any more money. I put all the money I had back in the company with very few exceptions, money that I had, you know, the, the liquidity I had, I put back into the company. The bank wanted me to put four and a half million dollars into the company and or into them, give them the money. I said, well, that ain't happening. We do that. We're out. We're done. So I said, I'll put the money into the company. And, you know, they froze the credit, did all that. Well, so essentially I went to those vendors and I'll never forget this. I mean, if there's other outfits out there, people are listening. It's incredible. So many times we fail to recognize the, our vendors for how the import, the, as to the importance they have to the business, not only when it's healthy, but also when it's unhealthy. Right. A um, true partnership. A true partnership. Right. So we had some really, really incredible vendors. And so when, when I went and presented them my open books, I mean, I opened my books to my vendors and said, look, you know, there's a lot of others out there that might, I don't say this for any praise or admiration. I'll just say this to say that I had three of those half dozen vendors step up and gave me credit. I said, the only way I'm going to get out of this is if you give me 180 terms and 180 day terms, and let me grow this business back to a point by where I can sell it. Cause I knew that was the only way that I could, I could get out. And so you mentioned, uh, Axon. So fortunately, you know, I had a guy that was interested in, and our company was very strategically attractive to their, what they were building. Yeah, South. Oh yeah. Good products. I mean, Corpus Christi versus. I mean, no, what? no, no. By this time, no, by this time we had, we were largely located in Houston and okay. Middle East and that kind of thing. So we didn't even have a facility in Houston, in fact. Okay. But no, it was how it fit their product mix. They were manufacturing BOPs, but they didn't have the valve and they didn't have the repair business. And so it was just a very, very good fitment for them. Not to mention the guy that, that was running the company, the CEO of the company at that time was had a liking for me and thought that I could help him. And so nevertheless, but we did manage to turn the business around and sell it to Axon, the most bittersweet experience of my life professionally. You know, because particularly when as a man, as a son, you know, you think about making your dad proud. Right. And so for me, my dad was dead. I mean, my dad's been dead for 15 years and he'd been dead for many of those 15 years up to that point. Because what was that? Oh, that was yeah. 2012. So he'd already been dead for almost eight years at that point. But I was still seeking his approval. And, and it was incredibly emotional for me. I bet. But, you know, and I, I'll just share this quick side note to that i remember sitting in that attorney's office the same attorney who told me that the first time i ever met him which was about 90 days before we sold he looked at my books and he looked straight across the conference table at me and told me that i needed to file chapter seven the next day <laughs> and you know with alcohol on my breath and a bad attitude i said i beg to differ sir i'm gonna sell this company i'm gonna do it in the next 120 days and so that's what we did but but i remember sitting in his office and i was signing all these papers and and I was the only one there. It was so anticlimactic, man. To, yeah, there's no one to celebrate with, or yeah, I yeah, mean, just or, or, or even to grieve with. Yeah, to me, it will. It really wasn't a celebratory exercise, except that I knew that my vendors, because that part of my deal was all my vendors got paid the same day. It was literally like when the when it funded, boom, two million dollars went out and paid every vendor I had off. Uh, the bank got made whole, at least to what we had agreed to. And all my customers' work got completed and every employee I had had a job for at least 180 days. Yeah. 
and largely most of them stayed on for longer after that. It was just me and my sister that left. She's like, I'm not going to work. No, sorry. I, I She was the only one that left. I actually did go and stayed on yeah. not as long as Briefly. I, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, you had a. I signed a three-year employment agreement and lasted four months. And, and All right. So you sold the company and that's when you and I started hanging a little bit more and you were trying to look for different things to do. You're an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur. You've Can I just stop you real quick please. and just say that I had a mentor of mine? Yes. Say to me, stop telling people you're a serial entrepreneur. It makes people think you don't know what you want to do. And I just think that's funny. It stuck with me. But I, I get the term. I just think that's funny. Well, no, that's People fair. like to laugh when they're listening to this kind of thing, too, if anybody does. No, listen, that's a fair comment, too, because, you know, it, it does make it sound like you want to put your hands in a lot of cookie jars. Yeah. But actually, when we, were, we had started Galtway Industries, a lot of things that, we were, that were coming at us were very attractive. I'm looking at Trey right now. We were excited mm-hmm. about them. And, things were, and you came to us and you said, guys, these are shiny things. Stop looking at shiny things. And it was actually a piece of advice that was really handy to us at the time because, you know, we had we had a little bit of money. We were excited. We the first time we weren't tethered to a company that we had to be responsible to on a daily basis. We were our own bosses, if you will. Always feels like you have more bosses when you work for mm-hmm. yourself. But you were the first person that kind of sat down and said, "Stop looking at shiny things." So I, I don't want to paint that in a bad light. Well, no, I, yeah, I just I think, think it's funny fun- that he said that to me. Who, by the way, I don't know if I should mention his name because I don't want him to call me up. Why are you, you know? I get in a lot of trouble with my mouth, but but anyway, this guy has him who himself is a tremendous entrepreneur. No one knows it's a private deal, but this guy's probably a billionaire, if I had to guess. Right? You know, just because of you know owns half of the skyline and a major metropolitan area, you know that kind of thing. You don't you don't typically own you know yeah. a billion dollars worth of buildings and not have a little coin. But nevertheless, it's funny that it was him who said that to me because you know he's in everything. But I think ultimately it's just it's more of a buzzword than anything. But yes, I am an entrepreneur to the core where yes. I see opportunity where people see risk and I'm learning to be a businessman. So keep going down your, your road. Yeah, well, I, it blends to the, the question of where you are today. Mm-hmm. And what I think you've done a, a great job at is I think you identify other people's strengths and then try to plug them into companies. Right. You have a, I'd like, that's why I mentioned Henderson Energy at the beginning. Because I know there's there's a couple of companies underneath that. If you don't mind, just giving me a well, how it's yeah. So up. I sold Doyle's. Here's what happened. I was in a non, and then I left, and and I was in a non compete for one year and then five years, respectively, to different types of non compete. The first one though, which all the others not important, but the first one was essentially preventing me from doing anything in and around oil field equipment. Okay, and even today, for the most part, you know, my livelihood and and the food I put on my table, figuratively speaking, for my family is as a result of my endeavors endeavors and interest in oil field equipment, not oil and gas, not EMP, not it's in the rig and equipment business. That's my trade. I know that business well. It's what I enjoy, but I wouldn't say I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about impact. I'm passionate about this industry and particularly, you know, two of you guys here and I'll, you know, just not to take away from what I'm, you know, what we're here to talk about, but I, I see both of you guys, Trey, you and Josh as being guys that share the same heart and wanting to make a huge impact in our space. And so that was why I was willing to, you know, sit here and talk with you about, about my life and that. about my contributions. But nevertheless, during that period of, of kind of sitting on the sidelines, so to speak, I did a lot of things. I was met with some disappointment. But most importantly, it was the first time in my entire career that I had a chance to reflect on both my life and most importantly, as it related to my career, my entrepreneurial path. And so 
what happened was I realized that I am literally, well, first I realized I had never done anything out of sheer passion. I'd never started a company because I thought I'm really interested in that. I always, you know, the companies that I had either started or the companies that I had acquired or in my father's case, one that I'd taken over in some ways reluctantly were all as a result of an opportunity and something that needed to be fixed or, you know, so I decided that I was going to do something different. I was going to be sure that whatever I did next was going to be significant, that I was, I really didn't care about being successful. And I don't want that to be taken out of context. Clearly I'm interested. It's like my good friend, Chris Bowler always says, if you haven't ever put a pair of Salvatore Ferragamo shoes on, okay, don't say that it doesn't matter what shoes you have. They just fit better, you know? So, but no, I like to go out and do nice things and do things for my family and have, you know, a little bit more, you know, it's nice to have something to to be comfortable. Who doesn't like air conditioning, you know? (laughs) Okay. So, but nevertheless, I'm saying that really what matters most is, is, you know, what we do for others and what we leave behind in way of our legacy. And so I was just dead red set on doing that first. Well, then I started thinking about, well, what is that going to be? Well, I came fat just to make it so I can get on with this. I realized that the oil and gas industry was really my platform, that if I were to walk out of the oil and gas industry, I would be doing a disservice to the people that I, you know, have a, have a, the privilege yes. to influence, yes. right. you know. I mean, candidly, you said the other day something about me being an influencer, and I've really never thought about it in that way, not being overly humble about that. I mean, clearly, I understand that I'm a leader. Clearly, I understand that I have a responsibility, but it is a big responsibility. And when when you get to a point by where people stop you and say, hey, I really appreciate what you're doing, and it's also encouraging that kind of thing. So the point is, is I realized that that I was never going to be out of the oil and gas industry in my professional career, God willing. and so. I revisited, you know, kind of what a lot of what made Doyle successful. And it didn't take me long to, to come up with a very similar set of values and, a, and you know, kind of what our purpose was. And, and I looked at a number of companies that didn't work out. And so I kind of just had to start over, if you will. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much you want me to get into well, that. Well, no, but. I'd like you, like I said, I'd like you to talk about uh, Henderson. Yeah. Um, Henderson Oilfield Products. Okay. Uh, so, so I'll start there. So basically, my non compete you know, expires and I have the opportunity now to go out in the market. I looked at a couple of companies, as I said, didn't work out. So a guy from Drill, in fact, called me. He was like, hey, are you in the, can you rent a BOP stack? I said, well, I'm not really set up for that. So we do that. I had to go find a BOP stack to rent Drill to go offshore for eight months. Then, you know, one thing led, leads to another. The next thing I know, I'm I'm building pumps for, for you know, neighbors. And, and then I start trading drilling rigs. Because at that time, the domestic market was dead and it was a buyer's market. Well, I knew everybody in the space. I could call every major drilling company and talk to the brass and say, hey, what are you doing with those 6,000 horsepower newer style rigs? Well, we need to get them off the books, Dan. Have you got some money? Yeah, well. And so that just kind of naturally progressed into, you know, going from a, a broker of equipment to a buyer and seller of equipment than to a broker of ma- of complete rig packages for major drilling companies and some oil companies to then becoming a, bu- a buyer of drilling rigs. Then we became a repair and refurbishment company of drilling rigs. Well, then companies started becoming available for us to buy. Right. So, you know, we've made a number of acquisitions, only a couple of which we've actually integrated into the company because 
in some cases there was not a whole lot left, if you will. There was just a lot of carnage, you know, a lot of um, yeah. We're coming out of a pretty yeah. It was really dreadful thirty month. Period. Yeah, it was it was a it, it was very difficult. It, it was difficult for us because you know we were met oftentimes by widows, you know, for example, whose husband had died, and this guy had a $50 million company. And then I'm negotiating tens of millions of dollars worth of settlements with banks and publicly traded drilling or uh, oil and gas companies. Right. I mean, it was a lot to unpack, but nevertheless, so over the last, well, since 2000, November of 2013, in fact, we have put together a very well-positioned company. And I appreciate you pointing that out. That is, is made up of a number of people who all subscribe to the same methodology and culture that makes not me special uniquely, but makes us as a team. And I think even outside, because now there's people who we've employed, you know, who have gone on to, to take some of those things to, with them to other companies that are starting to make an impact because culture matters. In fact, I'll, I, if you don't mind, I'll just say no. this because I'm proud of it. Even though it's in a difficult time, you know, we were recognized last week as one of the best small companies of 2019 in Forbes magazine. And that's all culture. You know, in fact, I remember having to unpack a lot of this because part of their selection criteria is financial performance. Well, we've bought companies. I mean, I bought stock in companies, which I rarely do. I mean, if you look at our, and not to mention, we've, we've done things too that have as we're trying to figure out what size of company we need to be and how to integrate this piece or do that. I mean, it's, it, it's a bit difficult to understand what the heck's going on, right. you know, and we wouldn't be able to do it if we had a lot of outside investors and banks and things like that involved. I mean, we we're in, been very intentional. Are you privately held? Yeah. Okay. So it's essentially me and I have another partner who does not like to be mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> I told you, I said, I put that deal on LinkedIn. God, he was so upset about that. Take me off LinkedIn. Anyway, but I, ha- I do have a partner that, that has, uh, it's a private business, but it's me and another guy who has been a mentor of mine for 15 years, done very, very well, uh, adds a lot of value, but he has, you know, he's, he's invested alongside me. And then we have a couple of other uh, okay. minority shareholders that, that are active in the business. Dan, let me jump in. Yeah. So you talk about- God, I was waiting hey, for you to I'm come in, on, man. I'm, no, I'm just sitting back. God, it's good well, to see time you. Time in my moment. Time <laughs> in my moment. So you talk about culture. And one of the things you said early on that I thought was very, very important was that you had a lot of mistakes early yeah. that you could learn from, you could still correct from. What are the major pillars of that culture that now you're getting known for and recognized for? Do you make a focus on creating a culture where people can make mistakes, to where they're empowered? Is it a culture on service and, and giving? What are those tenements of that culture that you've worked so hard to create? Well, thank you. Number one, you know, it, and I wouldn't say these are all uniquely mine because I'm, I'm part of, a, of an organization called Small Giants, and it's kind of more than just Henderson. It's, there's hundreds and possibly thousands. I'm not even sure what our membership base is up to. But it, it has to do with, you know, having an organization and leadership that has a vision, that has a purpose. As you mentioned, very transparent with our people, certainly very empowering to them to make decisions. And try to give them swim lanes, you know, where they can not do things that are going to necessarily, because we have a fiscal responsibility too, even to ourselves. Sure. Right. But where they can, they can exercise some decision making, learn from it, move on. I think more than anything, it really is, it's about honesty. If I could boil it down to one thing, it would be just being brutally honest with one another, our customers, our vendors. You know, we not only do that with ourselves, me at the top. <laughs> Okay, 
but we require particularly our leadership and management to do the same. And when you start getting real honest, no, we can't make that delivery. I just don't want to come to work today. No, I didn't call and, and verify that the funds were there. And then not penalize people for when they are admitted to that. Because if you think about it, the first thing that people learn to do is lie. A, a human. Sure. The, fir- the first thing I had, I was challenged on this recently, but I've got a bunch of kids. I have five children. So, you know, we everything we do is learned. You know, we learned everything with the exception of being afraid of loud noises and arguably to breathe and to nurse, you know, and then bodily functions, right? Everything else, social structure, language, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I didn't have to teach any of my children how to manipulate or lie. Now, where the challenge was, someone asked me recently, they said, we might have even been you, was it, Josh? <laughs> this morning? No, no, it would have been, wouldn't have been this morning. But they, they said, well, it would only have been because they've learned the consequences and that's what's taught them to, to be manipulating. But you know, I think that's it's you know because I talk a lot about truth and transparency, and one of the things that I've struggled with as a leader and as the person that's kind of the quote unquote creative director of our culture and also our brand, I really want people to trust me without them being given the opportunity. And one of the biggest struggles that I have professionally, because I think oftentimes my personality gets in the way of my heart and my true intentions, because I'm a terrible salesman. People would argue that, but because I am a deal guy. And I'm passionate about customer service. And so when I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I might have some intel even by either what they're telling me or by knowing just what's going on because it's a small industry. I know that we're the best choice for them. I know we're going to crush it, but they don't know us. They don't know me. And I'm thinking to myself on the inside, what can I say to this person to just make them trust me to know (laughs) I'm going to handle it? Now with Pete Cunyon, who I will say, who I love, he's he's working in the North Sea now. I remember sitting in front of Weatherford Drilling, in yeah, fact, when we were Columbia. walking through OTC right. at Columbia. He was running Columbia. And I just knew we were the right guys. And I said, look, Pete, I know we don't know each other, but I'm just telling you straight up and down, there's nobody else in the industry that can deliver on this like we can. I know that for a fact. So how do you do that? I mean, when you say that- Well, that's what I was going to get up to. Thank you for, for helping me move it along. But I, patience, when I'm saying I've got to show them, i got to show them. In fact, when, when we launched Henderson and we started branding, we were we were going to use trust Henderson, but it's just so corny. Yeah, if you have to tell someone to trust you, yeah, it's like it it's almost like humility. You know, I, I and I'm just going to tell myself. You know, that's I sign a lot of the things I do on LinkedIn and some of these other things with humble, kind, and hungry. And it's really not because for any other reason other than it's what I aspire most to be, and it's what I think most people would never believe I am if they were to meet me in passing. Because of insecurities that I have, I got a big voice, big personality. No one is ever going to actually walk away from a conversation with me and think that I'm humble or kind. You're eight foot tall too. So now yeah, that, that. yeah, they and might handsome say, tall. They yeah. might say I'm hungry, you know. But but I guess the point is, is that personally, the way I deal with just the anxiety and even say frustration to some degree when people won't just trust us or trust me, trust our team, I just have to be patient. But what we do, to, I think maybe what your question was, what are we doing internally to require people to be honest with you is not, not to be Gary V, but, you know, we just give them a couple of chances, and then if they can't come to the table, they got to go. Well, I'm Because, you, you, you know, culture, people in this – and look, I love this industry, but I, I, I won't even be specific to this industry. In general, people don't know – they use the word culture 
interchangeably like people use the word sales and I'm a salesperson or I'm a business development person or I'm a marketing person. The word culture, you know, essentially is just a common set of beliefs, Mm -hmm. if you will, values that are aligned by a, a group of people. It's not business processes. It's not methodologies that you go out into the market from a marketing standpoint. It truly is values almost, or not almost, it's values. Well, when you start running a company, and particularly if you have any more than you, okay, and whatever values you subscribe to, you're going to have to work really hard, and it's impossible to scale. If you like companies like, we have five values. This is what we value. Right. You can't scale that. Every time a company doubles in size, you, you marginalize your va- your culture. Mm-hmm. And so that's going back to small giant is, you know, just what are you willing to compromise in order to be whatever that is, be it big, be it wealthy, be it an exit. We want to hire this badass sales guy or this new marketing firm, or we want to go into a different market. If there's ever a risk, particularly international market, if there's a risk that your culture gets compromised, our team, our team is very quick to protect that. You know, it's Bo Burlingham calls it mojo. You know, I don't know why I thought this conversation was going to be about technical things. No. It, we, I <laughs> asked you that. I was I'm like, like, no. I, <laughs> I can get off all the end all that, but no, I don't think people really care about that. You know, that. I don't want it. Obviously, it's too late now, but like as I'm listening to this, it's Dan, you are unique on this front and you do share a lot. And I, I'm glad that, you know, we're going to, this podcast is called Oil Fill 360. Let me do the technical piece in 30 seconds. No, no hang okay. on, hang on, buddy. Because I want, I want to just kind of summarize this to you that okay. like this is part of what I want to get across. And you mentioned this maybe four or five hours ago in this podcast when you brought up the fact that, you know, how much we care about this industry. Yeah. Because we do care about it. You know, Trey and I personally care about it. I know you care about it. And one of the, one of the 360 degrees of Oil Fill podcast is the leadership and mm-hmm. the culture. Like I want people to understand I want them to hear that some guys or girls may never have a chance to meet you. That's and, that's where I was coming from. Yeah. One, one of the things that me personally, I've benefited from our friendship is I tell people, young entrepreneurs, when they come talk to me, I said, look, I, in some cases, I've already swam the Amazon, right? Yeah, for sure. I can tell you where the landmines are yeah. at. I can tell you where the snakes are at. and because we could we could switch roles here, and your and story your, your you're story, story is crazy. Your man. story is I mean, it's so interesting. Story. That's why yeah. I've been quiet. Yeah, I'm just letting yeah. you tell my story. Yeah, but for the people like Josh says, there's a bunch of not just business people out there. There's young entrepreneurs out there who see are seeing opportunities, and they're mm-hmm. going to lead the next wave behind us. And entrepreneurs, by the way, that's, that's right. A, that's, that's a new word. Even, I didn't but, know no, about that. No, that's just as important. Yeah, and that's for sure. So here's like where I want to go. Here is maybe. You can talk about your tech stuff later, but I got you now. So okay, go. What I want to know is talking to talking to me, talking to yourself, talking to other entrepreneurs out there. What have you learned through your successes and failures about all your predictions of worst case scenario, all of the bad things you've been through, all the high times you've been through, all the things you thought had value, didn't have value, all the monsters out there. How have you been able to overcome the fear? That it takes to do what it what you've been able to do in entrepreneurial business, and what tool sets do you go to now to still overcome those same scary monsters that are in the dark to let you keep pushing forward with positive energy? I've never overcome the fear. That's that's number one. Okay, but at the risk of not being humble, okay, I would say to the first part of that question, I'm enough. I realized later in my I, let me put it this way. 
later in my young adult life, okay, that I'm enough. Because what I realized is that a lot of the, not forget success and failure, but the drive, the motivation, what was motivating me to have this insatiable appetite to do something? Arguably, some of that's natural, okay? But, but I found that in, in my own reflection, that a lot of that had to do with not having a, a healthy self-worth, not confidence, I've never had, they're very different things, right? And so to the first part of the question, I would say that I'm enough no matter what, no matter what success or failure, success that I have, because we're never really measured by our failures. We only grow through them. And as a result of them, we're measured in life and by our peers and by the industry, by our success, right? So I'm saying with humility, that I don't really care because what's most important to me isn't what any of these people, these 60,000 people that we're going to experience here at OTC this year, think of me as a human ever or as a business person or an entrepreneur. So second part of it is, you know, tools and skill sets that I've learned. Yeah, of course, I'm not the young entrepreneur that I was. I've got a lot of scars financially, spiritually, mentally, you know, physically as a result of the pain that comes from being an entrepreneur and being a risk taker, because that's ultimately what it is. You know, as you get older and become more seasoned, you take more calculated risk because it's not you, it's you and not just the hundreds of people that work for you, but it's all their kids, all their futures. You know, it's so it's a big responsibility and you have to be careful about that. But, you know, as going back to when I went to UT Austin the first year, which I was just incredibly honored to go do, because think about it. We just, we're talking about impact. I'm not a public speaker. Okay. You can probably tell <laughs> as a result of this podcast, but you know, I'm not a public speaker, but I don't have a problem talking. I don't have a problem expressing my opinion. You know, I have a lot of practice. I don't need a preparation. I mean, I know what I know, not because someone told me so. So I get down there because I'm invited to talk about entrepreneurship with a group of petroleum engineers. And so just the first part of the exercise was I said, when I say this word, okay, they don't know what word I'm going to say. I'm going to say a word here in a minute. And when I do, I want 25 hands of the 80, 100 people in the room to go up. And I want you to tell me the word that you thought of. So what's the word, Trey? put you on the spot. Entrepreneurship. That's what I'm there to talk about. They know that. You think that these all these smart kids would know. So every word, as you can imagine, that I put up on that board was something sexy. And 25, 30 words later, things like power, you know, money, wealth, influence, women, men, whatever, you know, just the accumulation of everything in a moment that people identify and, and associate with being successful, I said, exactly not. So then I T-bar this thing and say, now imagine, I'm not going to go through it, guys, but imagine the opposite of every one of those words. And that's what it means to be an entrepreneur. And I didn't even know what it was. That's how ignorant I was. So the tools are, th this is the big takeaway because I don't know how we're doing on time, but I feel like I'm rushed. <laughs> you like that, didn't you? 
this is the big takeaway for me. If I had, had just one moment to answer that quickly, I would have said, I'm afraid all the time. You know, meaning I got to get up and overcome that. I talk about, I preached myself happy more often than I preach other people happy and, and also encourage, you know, that kind of thing. But I just realized as a result of all these experiences that no one's going to eat me. There is no worst case scenario. Yeah. there. I mean, other than a death, which I won't experience and I got good insurance. So, I mean, you know, I, I'm going to be okay. You know, I'm going to be okay. And so, and there is no, I don't think that you could coach somebody up around that. I mean, when you're dealing yeah. with it, you know, when you're just in it and I'll be quite candid with you. I mean, you know, we just got selected to be this Forbes small company, you know, business of 19 and we internally are dealing with some real difficult things, you know, as it relates to letting people go. And, and we talked about that. It's like, how do we celebrate? How do we yeah. be recognized for this? But at the same time, we've got people that, you know, are going homes and telling their, you know, not, I mean, and then some of that stuff is partly for what, how we've managed parts of the business, you know, and it's, uh, we, we felt that same way during the downturn. Yeah. There, was, there was definitely the math on the table that we weren't going to make it. Yeah, it's math. And, yeah. and it was, you know, I was speaking at that conference in London and they asked me, they said, when did you know you were out of the downturn? I said, well, when, when I stopped throwing up in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's kind of when. <laughs> but I don't, you know, but we, st- we still God, don't know. Hot mess, we still don't know when to celebrate you know, often. Yeah. You know, we yeah. don't know when to celebrate. Well, well, and I will just, so exactly. You know? And so that's what I've struggled with more than anything in this industry is as you do, as you're intentional about building a culture that not only people want to come and be part of internally, you know, as part of your team, but also externally that people are thinking, they, they don't even know what it is. I mean, yeah, in fact, George Foster said to me the other day, a couple of years ago, in fact, I think it was, I think you might've even been there when they did the BMA awards or whatever. And George Foster, as I was walking in, he was walking out. He says to me, Hey, Dan, Dan, Dan come here. Yeah, George, what's going on? Hey, I just want to let you know, man, you know, 15 years ago when you came out into this and like, I, you know, I was, you know, you were just out there, man. You were just out there. He says, and I got to tell you, brother, now you're just there. Well, so- and I'm telling you, man, to me, coming from him, who everybody in this space knows who George yeah. Foster is. Great he, guy. He's worked with every one of these companies, especially domestic companies. You know, and helping build their brands and that. Kind well, he's of thing. a fine company. There's a new marketing firm. I would argue that's uh, <laughs> no, no. I'm just saying that that he he knows he's the a space. good guy. Though. He's a solid guy. And and to for him to say that as being an old school sure. institutional guy that's built a lot, helped built a lot of brands. That is a good plug for you, by the way. After yeah. this, it meant a lot. You know, because I was doing the Galtway style of marketing early on in my career, doing things that people had no. That a lot of times didn't even know what I was talking about well let me let me transition here so we'll, we'll we'll start the wind down just a little bit here i want to uh i want to so we got another hour yeah that's right <laughs> intermission we'll see you tomorrow folks yeah. no so where it's going because i agree with you that's one of the things that you know i think you were ahead of your time on a lot of this stuff the websites mm-hmm. the uh the domain exact match domain right, stuff right. that you have where do you think it's going and if you're there now then where is it going and that can be in technologies, both digital and actual oil field products. And then where do you see the transition? You know, we always, in the drilling contractor world, it was always called the great crew change. That's largely happened. There is obviously, there's still a, a segment of our, our workforce that's of the age that's going to retire in the next five years. But for the most part, the big crew change happened during the last downturn. So where do you see this next 
I don't want to put you out too far here, but let's call it five, ten years of three, three years. No, I'm just saying. No. So I'm just trying to. I want to be able to address all those. Long you guys question. ask these questions that have like they're multi-dimensional. Really, we just like to hear. So number talk. one, number one, if you come to OTC this year and you visit the outdoor exhibits, it's going to be very clear that this style of marketing your company is is essentially dying. Okay. We're not gonna this, we're not gonna post in, this podcast till after OTC because we post this tomorrow they won't let us back. No, today. no, but it's like no, no. Hear what I'm saying. It's it's like electric cars. They're, electric cars are going to make up part of our blended fleet of fuel based cars, right? What I'm saying though is that there's going to be a lot of iteration that takes place in and around how companies effectively market themselves in this space. Number one, there's less companies, lots of consolidations at both, at, especially at the at the large cap deal. But I I would argue, and I don't know. Somebody can go look this up and fact check it. I would bet that a lot of what you're experiencing out here is as a result of the downturn. So the big companies just consolidate, right? The small companies go out of business, okay? So that's probably why there's a lot less exhibitors out here this year than there, there has been in the past, particularly with incline in the market. So I think ultimately, besides hiring Galway Marketing, how many times should I say that? Just oh, wait, you're putting it on, so. 20 bucks every time you yeah, say it. Yeah, 20 bucks. Right. No, literally. I think unless you're willing to go out there was a guy actually that was working with Gardner Denver for a very brief period of time who was doing some things very differently that, that were very noticeable. But if you're not willing to, to go out on the edge and do something a little bit different, then it is very difficult to get noticed, right? And that's just – that, I'm just talking about externally. That's the pull piece, right? What are we pulling? How are we going to pull people into our product or service? It's, it's less about what you sell and it's more about the why for people. And I think if you can figure out how to put that and package that, you know, or go get somebody that can help you with that. Yeah. And if you look at, if you look at other industries and adopt what, what other companies have done, whether it's Patagonia or people who create lifestyle brands, sure. it's, it's, you know, it's, they're selling more than just their products. Yeah. And I, I honestly think that's a lot of what we do and, and you how have we do it. All right. So that's number one. I think you've got to get uncomfortable with being disruptive as it relates to how you're going to mess I, build I could not agree with that more. All right. So that's number one on the brand side. On the technical side, where's the industry going? Okay. Well, you, you mentioned great crew change, which, you know, we certainly are in the middle of that. You know, everyone's talked about that. So it's here. It's happening. We as an industry are going to have to go find ways to attract people to our, to our space. But more importantly, you know, we, we need to recognize what we currently have inside our own companies and invest heavily in developing those people f to be both leaders and, as importantly, business people. You know, because the cycles, got to be careful about how I say this, historically, our industry has just not been very good at corrections. It's been feast or famine. A lot of that stuff is, is understandable because of a commodity and because of, you know, the world needs oil. But, you know, I'm also in the steel recycling business and you know, while it's cyclical as well, you don't have those violent swings. That's you know? pH deal. Yeah. yeah. Th there, you don't see those violent swings like you do, you know, in our space. And so if I could build a better mousetrap, it would be a company that could sustain any cycle. That's stealing from Jim Lank, one of our, our who's our COO. I love the way he says that. And I mean, if you're well, trying to, again, if you build a company who's financially capable of sustaining any cycle, well, in our space, you, you essentially can't chase the dollar. Not in an unhealthy way, which means debt kills, right? You got to stay centered and you got to allow your get rich quick scheme to take 10 years to mature. So that's essentially the and invest in people. So doing all of that well 
is I've been trying it for 20 years, and I would say that we're not great at it. I would say we're better than most because most people don't really think about those things because it is purely economic. Most companies in our space are public, and at the end of the day, it's public shareholders that drive those decisions. And a portion so, of their portfolio is energy or oil and gas, and they yes. offset the risk that way. But yes. for us, it's a different, it's yeah, a different it's world. Us. So on the technical side, where we are is, and you've heard this before, and I can talk about this to some degree until I'm blue in the face, so to speak, but we need less equipment than what we currently have. And so essentially it's right now about not so much technological advancements because there's only so much, and I can only speak really to drilling a hole in the ground, you know, as opposed to everything that comes before and after that, because that's really the area that we, that we focus on and the customers, our customers are drilling contractors just to put it simply. So basically we need less equipment to do the kinds of things that we're doing as a result of the improvements technologically that we've made. And so companies need to look at how they're going to repurpose their equipment, possibly resell it, you know, or recycle it. Does a global market help you? I mean, yeah, I think, I think the way when we think about how to build, you know, and I don't like the word balance. I don't think the word balance actually exists. Mm -hmm. I like to use the word blend. So the right blend would be, 50% 50% or better of your your customer base to be international or to be international and the balance to be domestic you know and then have as little debt as you can uh, if you're going to sustain if you're right that, that's that's really what I'm you know what I'm speaking to but all right so I we could keep going but I'm going to wind us down here with one no, last yeah cuz none of this stuff is interesting everybody's heard all that yeah. stuff before so last question here we end all interviews with if you could tell a younger person or a younger Dan a piece of wisdom, a pearl of wisdom, a piece of advice, or just a philosophy that you base your life around that's important to you that you would like to pass on to the audience, what would that be? I thought the last question was going to be, are we living in a simulation? Right. That's, that's for our next podcast. Oh, my goodness, Josh. I don't know if I can do that, man. What would you tell the younger Dan? Enjoy the ride. Nothing. I mean, you know, I, I have no regrets. In fact, I say oftentimes that I don't even make decisions anymore. I just make adjustments. So. Tell the truth. Maybe they're not going to eat you. Maybe that's what I would tell my younger self. There you go. That's, that's, what, I, that's what I would tell my younger self. That is a- I, I said that earlier. I mean, because that, that, it's the fear of the unknown is the number one reason why people don't do more with their lives. Absolutely. That's it. It's a shame. That's it. That's a shame. Dan, what a pleasure. Thank what you. a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. This was great. I mean, it, it is somewhat accidental but uh, i don't really believe in accidents i think this is meant no, to be. i think yeah absolutely this is fantastic and and the good news is that, that <laughs> i probably won't be run off today yes you know i'm an hour late to my own <laughs> meeting that i called i did get some grace though so i got a great trade do you have anything no thank Dan, you for, thanks for being here yeah. so ladies and gentlemen again this is uh oil Field 360 podcast i'm gonna plug you a couple websites here where would you like people to go if they wanted to learn more about Henderson Energy and Henderson Oilfield and or PH Steel. Where where would they go? So HendersonRigs.com. That's the domain and website for all of our Henderson companies. And okay. the PHSteel.com is our is our steel recycling. And that's Proler company. Henderson. Yeah, Proler Henderson. Okay, because Proler I know is a legend in the. Uh, yeah, his family's done quite well. In fact, I was I listened to Jamie Stewart's podcast the other day, which I encourage everyone to go listen to. He's got a great story about family legacy and and just some hardships and coming through all that. But he too, his company you know, or his family rather had been in the space for or has been. Yeah. You know, for a hundred plus years and, and so Chris's family's it's it's really cool, you know, because I'm not from that. <laughs> Let me just leave it at that. 
I didn't come from that. Uh, very proud of my family and, and, you know, why I am the man I am today. But nevertheless, a lot of legacy. So All right. It's been fun. Well, we Thank appreciate it. And uh, again, Oilfield 360 podcast coming to you live from 2019 OTC. Dan Anderson, thank you very much. For Josh Lowry, Trey Smith, we'll see you next time, folks.